Well, we're going to turn to God's Word again as we turn to Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, the passage that uh, the Taylor family read for us earlier in the service, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And let's take a moment to get our bearings again tonight, reminding ourselves that Paul was at this point still a prisoner in Rome. And from his confinement in his cell there, he wrote numerous letters to encourage the churches that he had established and set up during those three great missionary journeys recorded for us in the book of Acts. Now, there's an ongoing debate as to whether this letter was sent specifically to the church in Ephesus or whether it was a general letter or an open letter for all the churches across Asia Minor in what we call modern-day Turkey. But either way, it was to travel in the pocket of Paul's friend Tychicus, and that's recorded for us in Ephesians 6, verse 21. And he was to deliver it in person, bringing greetings from Paul uh, to those fellow Christians with whom he had built up such a bond of affection. This letter is what we might call a traveler. And as we read Paul's words in verses 14 and 15 of Ephesians chapter 3, it does not just span the length of the Roman Empire from Rome where Paul was to the city of Ephesus. Rather, it follows that great long road of Christian history and tradition so that even today, we too can open it, read it, benefit from it, and grow in it. So if Paul prays this prayer that he records for them, that he writes down for his Ephesians friends, then let me make this a prayer for us today. Why don't you make it a prayer for yourself as we continue in this new phase of church life together and travel this uncharted road in 2020. In verse 14, do you see how Paul begins his prayer for the Ephesians? He says in verse 14, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now, what reason does Paul have in mind? For this reason, he says, what is it that motivates Paul to pray for the Ephesians? Well, basically, it's everything that's gone before in Ephesians chapters 1 to 3, where we have already seen all that God has done for us in Christ. God has broken the power of darkness. He has raised those who were dead in sins to a new life. He has made us right with God through Jesus Christ, his Son, our Savior. And it's on the basis of these gospel truths he has reason to pray. But the incredible thing is, these truths bring us into a remarkable new family. And we've touched on that in recent weeks already. As Christians, we do already have a background. But it's a background then that draws us together in what Christ has done for us. Just as you didn't choose who your own mother or father or brother or sister would be, and thank goodness say some of you, or what a shame say others, so it is the same with the church. We don't get to choose who our brothers and sisters in Christ are. And what a family we are that God has drawn together. What a random bunch of misfits we really are. Who ever thought of bringing us together, bringing him or her or this one or that one together in one family? But God has. But God has. It's not just that but God intervenes and saves us from our sin, but God is the one who brings us together. It's of God's doing that we're part of this church family. And verse 15 reminds us we're a family that has a history that links us, yes, with one another, but also with believers throughout all time and even into eternity. Those who've inspired us in the past have already gone on to glory and we're also intimately linked with the saints in Ephesus, with Paul, with Christ and with God, as verses 14 and 15 remind us. Do you see it? 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. God is our Father, and we have a family that reaches into the future and deep into the past with every saint of God, with every Christian across this world and across all time. So when we meet, we are the only bunch, the only group of people that has an enduring history and an unending legacy. I want you to grasp today just how incredible the church of Jesus Christ really is. For every other organization or business or club or society or family will fade or fold or die. But we as his people have a past, a present, and we have a future. Because we share in the name of the God who fathers us. We meet as his family. We are this wonderfully saved yet marvelously strange body that he calls the church. And so what does Paul pray for the church? For them in Ephesus, for us today. First of all, inner strength. Inner strength. He says and prays in verses 16 and 17, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul's concern for the church was that individuals would be strengthened according to their inner being. Now, what does that mean? Well, thankfully, Paul helps us in this in another passage in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, where he says, Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For what is seen is temporal, but what is seen is eternal. What does all that mean? Well, it means all of us, whether we're 8 or 18 or 80, are all getting older. None of us can turn back the clock. I am not able to do the things I did when I was 21 just as effectively or quickly. My glasses are a permanent reminder that my sight is not what it was. And my back talks to me every morning after I've played football or done some running or exercise the night before. For older members among us, the pain of those joints or the stiffness of arthritis or the battle with ongoing illness is only a daily reminder that these bodies of ours are not what they once were. But how many of us know the dear Christian friend, that dear saint of God of whatever age, who despite their obvious physical challenges that they faced, seem to live as if they've already got one foot in heaven? We're all blessed to know people like that, aren't we? People who are fine Christian folks. These folks mightn't be able to walk as they did or remember as clearly what they should be doing, but their face beams with a love for Christ and a depth of thankfulness for his grace. And then on the other hand, there are other folks who are battling similar conditions and their inner being appears to have become just as twisted as their physical bodies. They have become tetchy and sharp and argumentative and bitter and grumpy and grouchy. In their younger days, they had sufficient physical stamina to keep that inner being under control. But now, with their bones creaking and their bodies failing, what they really are is spilling out for everybody to see. And that's Paul's great concern, that this, these bodies of ours are not as important as our souls. We need strengthening within for if we are outwardly fit and able and surrounded with all we need and really have nothing much to complain about, if we've got good health or a good family, strength, success, security, satisfaction in our jobs, income, respect in society, 
we just toddle on regardless and we don't need to worry too much about our inner soul because everything seems all right. But let me ask us, how are we inwardly? How is it with your inner being today? What's going on deep within? What enables us to flourish inwardly as we fade outwardly? Where does our inner strength come from when we're stripped of everything else? I mean, with the wonders of technology, I keep being bombarded as a man of a certain age with adverts that suggest how I should strengthen my core, build or rebuild my six-pack, strengthen my abs, build a better me. It's all about the body, the body, the body. Or more recently, the BBC are bombarding viewers, I'm sure you've noticed, about mental health issues, which is extremely important to talk about and air. And we shouldn't neglect our minds and our mental health. Body and mind. Mind and body. And I'm also amazed how many gyms and fitness suites have started talking in vague, vague general terms about the fitness of the mind and the body. Now, I've absolutely no doubt that healthy bodies are a good thing and mental health is to be cared for. It's really important. But these healthy minds and healthy bodies of ours are of no eternal use if we don't have a healthy soul. If we don't take time over our inner being, as Paul prays for. Because when disappointments or disease or depression or disaster strikes, what enables you to stand? What Paul is saying is that we need to get praying for the things that really matter. The deep spiritual things as opposed to being obsessed with the material things all the time. I mean, think of Paul. He's there in chains. He's in prison. He's shackled to a guard. And he is not saying, pray that I would be released. Oh, Ephesian friends, pray that I would be comfortable and safe and my toothache would disappear. Or these bones of mine wouldn't just feel as sore in the morning. Or pray that I'll be comfortable or cared for. Or, or, or pray that I'll, I'll move to somewhere nicer. Pray that I'll get a nice new patio heater for, for outside in the prison or a nice comfortable garden furniture that I can enjoy with the prison guards. No, no, no. Paul is obsessed with praying for the inner being. I mean, I am sure the Ephesians were people in many ways like us. And yet Paul does not encourage them or even urge them to pray for Mrs. Smith's knee replacement or Tommy's heart condition or Jim's dodgy joints, or how Sarah's schooling is going, and whether or not she'll get into the right university. Not that we shouldn't pray for those things. Paul says in Timothy that we should pray for all things. But Paul says they're not top priority. Because you can have all those things, and you can have a shriveled wee soul. So many of our prayer meetings would have to shut down tomorrow if we didn't pray for anything but people's health and well-being and yet we read those great prayers in the Old Testament of Moses, of David, of Daniel, of Nehemiah, or even those in the New Testament of Jesus or Paul himself. And nowhere do we find in those prayers, prayers that they would keep well and be healthy and strong. Maybe today it's because we're so obsessed with not wanting to die, thinking that what we have here on earth is better than the presence of God in heaven. And that is why many of us have become health obsessives. You know, we have this sneaking suspicion that what we've got here is better than what we will have there. 
what matters most individually and as a church comes through in our prayers. And that is why we've got to take this rain check today on these prayers that we pray. If our prayer times are so taken up with bodies and sickness and illness so that our souls, we hardly pray for them at all. But we want to become a people who have strong inner souls so that whenever those trials of disease or disappointment come, we'll stand because we're strong within. Strong bodies, bright minds, big houses, busy churches full of vigor, but we've just got these wee gnarled up souls. How often we forget, and I'm talking to myself this evening, how often we forget that our children, our family, our friends have never dying souls. And yet we're so obsessed with, well, how are you doing? Souls are what really matters most. And Paul prays that our strength would come by God's Spirit as his Son comes to dwell in our hearts. Look at verse 17, by faith. The Bible affirms that every believer who trusts in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit alive and at work in him or her. That is wonderful. It could be translated that Christ dwells in us more fully. It's a prayer. Come on, Christ. Holy Spirit, work in us. Strengthen us. May Jesus come to live in us more and more. Picture with me a couple who've gathered enough resources to put together enough for a down payment on a mortgage. They buy the property. They recognize that it needs a fair bit of work. It's what some people call in the trade a real doer-upper. But they go in and they can't stand the 1980s wallpaper. The fluorescent paint in the living room looked very good when they viewed the house, only to discover that when the piano had been taken away, the previous owner had painted around the piano, and they're left with a great white piano-shaped mark on the wall. There's loads of rubbish in the roof space, broken ornaments, tacky Christmas decorations. There's even an old portrait of a lady up there who looks like she's been sucking on a lemon. The kitchen was designed for convenience of the plumber, certainly not the cook. In one of the cupboards is a six-pack of spaghetti hoops dated sell-by 2007. The roof leaks and the insulation barely meets the minimum standard. The electrical box is too small for their needs. The lighting in the bathroom is poor. In the tiny garden, it looks like all the local cats have been using it as their personal ensuite, and there's dirt everywhere. But this is this young couple's first home, and they are grateful and they are excited. The months slip past, and then the years, and the wallpaper has been replaced with tasteful pastel patterns. The piano-shaped wall has been stripped and replastered. Then the couple have remodeled the kitchen. The roof no longer leaks. The rubbish has been cleared out. The roof space has been converted into a very pleasant study, and there are no portraits or Christmas tat up there anymore. They have even added an extension, a family room, and a conservatory. The kitchen waste Small is sufficient. The garden, whilst they would love it to be a little bit bigger, has a lovely new fence, and most of the cats stay out now and have a beautiful new flower bed. Ten years after the purchase, the husband turns to his wife and remarks, you know, I really like it here. This place suits us. This house has been shaped to our needs and our taste, and I really feel comfortable and at home. At the start, it was theirs, but a mess. Ten years on, it is theirs, and it looks a whole lot better. 
And friends, that is the same when Jesus comes to live in us. At the start, it was a mess. But over time, it begins to look a whole lot better. When Christ by his Spirit resides in us, he finds the moral equivalent of the rubbish and the paisley patterned wallpaper and the leaking roof, and he sets about turning this house as a place that he can live in. He makes it his, and he is pleased to be there. A home in which he is comfortable while dealing with all those dark corners that need cleaned up and cleared out. But his aim is clear. He wants to take up residence in our hearts as we exercise faith in him. Make no mistake about it, when Christ moves into our lives, he finds us in a state of terrible repair. It takes a great deal of power to change us. And that is why Paul prays for that power. It's praying, Lord, change me into the person that you want me to, a home that's fit for you. We need it. And he asks that God would so strengthen us by his power in our inner being so that Christ may genuinely take up residence in us, transforming us into a house that reflects his very own character. The idea of getting rid of the old and dirty and adopting the new and clean and putting off the old and taking on the new is one of Paul's regular themes. And that is his prayer, that over time our hearts and lives would be evidence of the fact that we have a new resident. In other words, it's asking God to shape us into the image of Christ himself. Because as chapter 2 verses 21 and 22 have already reminded us, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And that's our goal. Not to be big churches or busy churches or traditional churches or contemporary churches or churches with great youth and children's work or nice halls. Our prayer should be that for all of us and for all of you, is that Christ would live in our hearts by faith. People who look and live and learn and serve and talk and have marriages and do business as those who look more and more like Jesus. And when we pray and seek that God would strengthen us, that strength comes to us inwardly, not outwardly physically. He builds us up from within. The beams are strengthened. The flooring is secure. And what Paul asked for his readers is that they would be fortified and invigorated, that they would know the strength of God's Spirit, and they may hold on to that more firmly as we become his divine dwelling. Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on these verses, puts it like this. Do we really believe that we need to be strengthened? Fail to see this, and we will reveal how little we understand or appreciate the magnitude of what God has done in us. His Son, the Creator, who the heavens cannot contain, the mighty Lord, comes to live in frail, sinful mortals. The magnitude of this is too much for us to take in fully. But when we begin to appreciate it and live in its light, the effect is life-changing. Christ lives in us. But how are we to take hold of this? Well, first of all, pray this prayer for yourself. Pray this prayer for me. Pray this for our whole church family in Lecomfort and Union Road. Pray that we will be strengthened within. Let's pray that from this day on, for you and for me and for us, that God would strengthen us from within so that we could stand whatever comes our way from without. For it's one thing to ask for God for this strength, but how can we be sure that he will supply us with that same strength? Well, we read 
of the glorious riches of Christ in verse 16. Do you see it there? I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. All that God has already secured for us on account of Jesus Christ. Everything that we have comes from God through the Son. We are forgiven. He has brought us to God. Our debt of sin is cancelled. Heaven is assured. He has granted us eternal life. He calls us his children. Every blessing we have is tied up with what Christ has already done. This is Christ's glorious vault of unlimited, eternal, deep, fathomless grace. These riches are incredible riches to hold on to. So to doubt that we will have enough strength to go on, enough in the spiritual tank, when we face cancer or career change or coronavirus or death or difficulty or depression, is to say to God, you haven't done enough for us. It's in effect saying, Jesus, your death wasn't enough for me. Jesus, you're lacking something. He saved us, but he's not strong enough to help me now. I'll trust him for this, but he can't be relied upon for that. And that is why we need to pray this prayer. So we're continually strengthened through the riches that are there for us. As Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. Lord, strengthen us according to your riches. Strengthen me in my inner being so that together we can see the all-sufficiency of Christ. He has covered every base. He can give strength in every situation. Here Paul argues that in the giving of his own dear son, God has given us all that we need and the promise of the riches are ours. He emptied the storehouses of heaven for us. He piled it up high. The cross is the guarantee of his continuing unfailing generosity. It's like the dad who's out with his kids on a day out by the seaside and he's paid her out already for chips, for ice cream, for that silly tat from that toy shop, a few coins for the air hockey table, more ice cream, a new bucket and spade, more chips, more ice cream. And then it comes to the end of the day and the kids look up at him with big eyes and one says, Dad, please, we really need you to buy us this. We really need to give us that. And as he looks around at the empty cans and now broken toys from the shop and the ice cream cartons round about them, he says, looking at the whole lot, I've already given you all that you need today. In such a grander way, the minute we start to complain about our lot is evidence that we have forgotten Christ and his cross. Because we don't have a sugar daddy who feeds us and gives us the stuff to keep us chugging along and happy with candy fixes. He gives us his crucified son. His best. He gives us his treasure possession to make us treasure possession. He gives us his eternal son so we can become eternal sons. So isn't this what we should be praying for day to day? That's what I pray for us, that we would grasp these truths and they would strengthen us deep within. When our world seemed to be falling apart, we have an inner strength, glorious riches, secured for us by Christ, and we are comforted that he is right there for us. The second thing we want to be praying for, as Paul indicates in his prayer, is slightly briefer, but it's all about taking a deeper route. Deeper roots. Verse 17, the second half. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. Paul joins these two word pictures to help us, doesn't he? He takes us into the garden and he takes us to a building. 
These Christians are to be rooted and grounded and have foundations in his love. What's the secret in plant growing and structure building? Well, isn't that what goes on below the surface is of greatest importance? The roots and the foundations. And for Paul, Paul says that our unseen stability comes from love. Love. What does he mean by that? Let's get out of our mind this sloppy February the 14th kind of love. Here he's talking about the sacrificial love of Christ. Something that's not weak. Something that's not to be messed about with. It's something that roots us good and strong. I remember very little about the psychology lectures from the education classes at Stranmillis where I was training to be a teacher. But I reckon from the second year on, I think I managed to get into every exam question and every essay that I wrote, this one line, happiness is the soil from which learning grows. Happiness is the soil from which learning grows. In other words, if you have a happy classroom environment, the children will listen. You'll get more from them. In an environment of love, they'll grow. But Paul is saying here, put your roots down deep in Christ's love. Dig deep into the foundations of what Christ has already done for you. And that will enable you to grow. Love is to be both foundational, but also radical. As we learn to love others out of the love that Christ has already had for us. And next we will look further at this prayer as we consider the dimensions, the height, length, breadth, and depth of the love of Christ, which is our memory verse. But for now, let me encourage you to pray this prayer as I pray it for you. You see, this isn't a prayer that we would love God more. We need to get this into our minds. This is not a prayer that we pray, Lord, we ask that you'd help us to love you more. No. It's Paul saying that every day for all of God's people, we should be praying that we get our minds around just how much God loves us. And and therein is the difference. You see, that's the gospel. We all too quickly turn it on its head. We judge ourselves by how much we think we love God. You know, oh, I, I read and I prayed today and I showed a bit of kindness to a neighbor. I have loved God well today. But next day we sleep in, we get up a bit cranky, Work takes over and we neglect to read and pray and we don't feel we've done anything world-changing for Jesus. So we feel, I have loved the Lord a little today. But Paul says, no. Pray that you get your mind around the riches of his love for us in Christ each day. This is not a prayer that we would love God more, although that is important, but a prayer that asks God to help us see just how much he loves us. And what a love. A love that we have considered in these weeks that reaches down and makes the dead alive, sinners saved, grace is great. Our God gifts us his own son as saviour, paying for our sin, loving us completely, dying in extremity, carrying all our burdens, holding us for all of eternity. Perry Downs is a wonderfully warm North American lecturer who has taught in several Bible colleges on Christian morals and ethics. He and his wife have two daughters, but over the year they fostered over 30 children. The story is told of how on one occasion they received an urgent phone call from the agency to ask if they would take in some twin boys. They were very reluctant as they were extremely busy at that time, but they, well, eventually agreed under great pressure from the social worker who wouldn't take no for an answer. 
these twin boys had a horrific background. And when they arrived, they hardly ate the meal that was set in front of them. They barely spoke a word all evening between them. And about an hour or so after bedtime, there was complete silence in their bedroom and Perry went in to check on them. Their bed was wet with tears. They were clinging to their pillows, silently weeping. Why? They were afraid of this new environment. It transpired that having been moved from home to home, they'd been in around, I think, nine homes, five of which it was discovered the father or mother beat them mercilessly. Psychological tests taken at school showed that they were irreparably damaged, and Perry and his wife fostered them for quite some time until another Christian couple became available and took the boys lovingly in. One of the boys is now a respected high school teacher with a great pastoral heart for his pupils, and the other has represented his country at the Olympic Games. By the time they left high school, they took the same psychological test that they had done all those years before, and it was found that not only were they equal, but they surpassed their peers in terms of emotional intelligence and concern and love. What made the difference? Being reminded each day that they were loved. That they lived in an environment of love where they weren't going to be beaten up or abused, but rather in an environment where they were to be accepted and loved. And yes, even when they did wrong, forgiven. And so it is with Christ. That's the environment of love that we are to wake up to and pray into every day. And Paul wants us to grasp the dimensions of his love for us. If we spend all our time thinking about what we fail to do and how little we love, we will be disorientated in our Christian lives. But instead, he wants us to be rooted and established in his love, not ours. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is his love, not ours. To look up not dying, to look to him, not within. What a wonderful prayer to pray. Lord, help me to learn more of your love today. By way of personal application, don't go into the rest of this evening or into this new week without asking yourself these questions. How long have you known Christ? What changes have been made in you? Have you been praying the right prayer? And do you see just how much he loves you? So with me, as we continue to pray this prayer, I'm going to be praying it for you as the congregations of Union Road and La Comfort by name over these next number of weeks again. I'm going to be praying for you by name that your love, love of Christ would be known and change your environment and your hopes and your futures and your days. As we grasp these glorious riches, like people who sit in the middle of a, a great treasure hall that we've discovered, a great treasure chest with those gold uh, you know, nuggets and those uh, amazing jewels and diamonds running through our fingers. And we look and see this is the riches of Christ. This is how much... He loves me.
And I trust as we hold on to the riches of his love towards us, that that would change us together forever. We're going to pray together by way of response. So let's turn our hearts, let's still our minds, and let's turn these points of application into prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you as a family. We're not together, but we are one because we are yours. And we thank you for the gospel truths that give us that unity despite our diversity. And tonight we ask you for inner strength. That out of the riches of your grace and by your spirit, we'd be rooted and established in this love. Forgive us for our unnerving and almost uncontrollable urge to simply pray about the things that we see, the bodily, material things, instead of praying for our hearts, our souls, our spiritual lives. For being so taken up with the stuff of today that we have so little thought for the things of eternity. Help us to see ourselves and our loved ones not just as bodies to be looked after and pampered and cared for, but as souls to be saved. Because outwardly we're going to waste away, Lord. And so we need you to renew us inwardly day by day. Holy Spirit, go about that remodeling in us, we pray. Clear out the rubbish, clean what was dirty, restore what's been broken, demolish what is unhelpful, cover us in your righteousness, fill us with your truth, tear us apart if we need to. Do your demolition work in us. And redecorate our lives, we pray, so that others would see Christ in us. The Spirit at work, make our lives places where you are fit to dwell. Reign in us and be the ruler of our lives, we pray. Lord, may we be increasingly rooted and established in your love. Lord, of course we want to love you more, but it starts when we realize how much you love us. So may we be saturated in this uncontainable love as we see just how much you've done for us. Remind us each and every day in this new week that we are loved, that we are treasured, that we are your children. Help us to hold on to and grasp tightly to these riches, for you say to us they are your share in them. May these truths strengthen us in all of our struggles. May these truths enable us to stand. May your love be so real to us that it is better than life or anything else that life might offer to us. And so we say, thank you, Lord. So, Lord, keep us together and change us forever as we pray in our Savior, saving, loving, grounding, keeping, changing, and calming name.